hasn't it? So we praise the Lord. We're going to turn our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and continue our series on authentic church. And um, I'm just going to cover two verses, I think, uh, this evening. And so um, let's begin reading here in, in chapter 1, verse 1. We'll just read down to verse 4. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice verses 3 and 4. As, as I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for tonight. And we just want to praise you, dear Lord, for, uh, Lord, all that you've already accomplished in our hearts, in our lives, Lord, in our fellowship, in, in the times of uh, worship, in, in the edifying of the, of, the, of the saints. And thank you, dear God, Then all of that, it's been your, your work. And Lord, it's been none of us. And Lord, I do thank you, though, that we have the the opportunity and the, the privilege once again to open your word tonight. Lord, help us to, to just uh, be open to, Lord, the Spirit of God ministering to our hearts, the word of God. And I pray that you'd help us as a church, Lord, to, uh, Lord, to take heed the things that uh, will be given tonight. I pray, Lord, for your enabling. I pray, Lord, for clarity of thought. And I pray, dear God, that you would help us this evening in Jesus' most precious, holy, wonderful name. Amen. All right, so we've covered verses... Um, Verses 1 and 2, as we've started this series on uh, this, uh, this great letter, uh, the, the first pastoral letter uh, epistle from the Apostle Paul to his uh, son in the faith, Timothy. We discussed a little bit about who Timothy was. Uh, we, we looked a little bit about um, the, the, the greeting that Paul gave to, uh, to Timothy, and he really he came with his authority, he came with commandment, as we, as we learned, and then we spoke about uh, the fact that, uh, that he gave them uh, this salutation of grace, mercy, and peace. And so we're going to jump now into verses, uh, verses 3 and 4. And I think that that'll be it for tonight. And again, he says there, as I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus. And it'd be good for us to just pause here and think about the, the setting of which uh, the, the, uh, this young man, this young pastor, Timothy, was about to minister. And so this, this was the city that he was going to minister to. And he was, he was telling, um, Paul was telling Timothy, I besought thee to abide. He's saying, I want you to stay there. And as we go through and, and start to really learn about the, the issues that were starting to happen in the church, we're going to see that the, the reason why um, Paul was admonishing him to stay. Because really he was in a bit of a difficult situation. And he was in a situation where he really had to battle through some things that were happening in the church. And, and so thinking about the city of Ephesus, it was in that day a really large and important city. Uh, it had a population of, of some 350,000 people. It was centrally located on the western coast of Asia Minor. And, and Ephesus was really positioned in a real strategic point. It was midway between the west, uh, western coast and then also uh, really between two continents. And here it really met... Uh, East and West met together. All right, here the crowds of government officials, Roman soldiers, uh, Jewish businessmen, 
rub shoulders with Eastern pilgrims flocking into Ephesus, really to worship at the notorious temple of Artemis. The city was famous for the great arterial Roman road that linked it with the world. It was famous for its markets, its warehouses, and for its administrative buildings and schools. So it was quite an affluent city. But above all, really, Ephesus was famous for its temple to Diana or Artemis. It was heralded as one of the wonders of the world. It was the sacred shrine of the, really, the repulsively ugly image of the mother goddess, Artemis. Purportedly an image that descended from the sky itself. And so in that temple, worshippers enacted the licentious rites usually characterized in Eastern religion. And so Ephesus was, a, was that kind of cosmopolitan, large, bustling city. But Ephesus was also Paul's headquarters during his third missionary journey. He stayed in the city for nearly three years and established here, as we see, a large, influential church. Um, other names associated with Ephesus include Aquila and Priscilla, Apollos, Tychicus, and then even Apostle John. And so the church there enjoyed the prolonged ministries of two apostles and really was the only church in the New Testament to receive letters from two apostles. And we're going to turn there in a little while in Revelation chapter 3. But here we're going to enter into now the, the, the couple of verses here. We're going to get into the, the charge that Paul gives Timothy. The reason why Timothy was, was to abide still there in Ephesus. And it, it'd be good learning for us as we consider uh, here just the introduction to this book really. Uh, the, some of the reasons, some of those issues that, that really uh, caused and, and, and was the reason uh, T- Timothy had to stay and be there in Ephesus. And so here's Paul's charge, okay? A, a charge is, is, is the thing that you entrust someone with. It's a duty. It's a responsibility. And here in this chapter, Paul gives Timothy this charge. Here in verse 3, he says, As I besought thee to, behold, uh, to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some, that they teach no other doctrine. In, in verses 18 to 20, we won't take the time to read it uh, all this, uh, this, um, this evening. He again reiterates this, this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy. And he's going to go into some specifics there. But uh, suffice it to say, much of the reason Timothy was to stay and abide in Ephesus had to do with doctrine. Had to do with the, the teaching of right doctrine. Okay, the charge is given to Timothy by Paul it is really related to the doctrine and practice in the local church. And really, that's what really sets the scene for the rest of the book. It sets the scene for us as we consider what it is and, and how it is to have authentic church. And he's going to say that in verse 5 where he, he uses this, uh, this phrase where it's the end of the commandment is unfeigned faith, which means real faith authentic faith. And as you know, this year, uh, really our theme this year is to have authentic Christianity. And it'd be good for us then to learn about how to do church authentically, accordingly to the Scriptures. And, and there's a specific book here that is given us in, in this book, First Timothy. And so what I'm saying is doctrine was at the heart of Timothy's call to the church of Ephesus. 
And if you ask uh, any, any, any pastor, if you ask uh, those that are effectively doing the work of the ministry, it's not just about the, the, the programs and things and, uh, that, that we're running. And all of that was good. I was listening to, to, uh, to uh, Pastor Jeremy there. I was uh, just thinking about all of the things that, that's happening there in Luganville, and it just sounded really familiar to me. It's just very, the, the very uh, similar challenges in a different context that we have here. But a lot of it also had to do with training up in right doctrine. He's having Bible classes to teach, and they're preaching and teaching and, and, and writing curriculum to be able to instruct in sound doctrine. So what I'm saying is it, within the context of the local church, within the context of ministry, at the, really at the as part of the cent, uh, central, um, central needs within a ministry is the, the need for the teaching and the defense of sound doctrine. I was pleased this morning to listen to the men as they were all sitting around, and I, I only got to two, um, to two groups. I didn't know men liked to talk that much, but we did. You know, we were just uh, chatting around the, the, the auditorium, and it... Over and over again, as I was eavesdropping uh, with all the groups, what was repeated was this, we need to have sound doctrine. We need to have pure doctrine. Uh, we need to make sure that, that whatever we believe and, and whatever we do is, is founded upon the Holy Scriptures. And that's a good mentality, church. That's a good thing. Um, doctrine, to me, is not boring. It's It's essential. We need to thrive on that. And more and more in our day where we can, we can have so many different influences, we, we better just be well-versed and well-studied in this matter of sound doctrine. And we better be. And, and, you know, that's a challenge for me as we'll learn a little bit. It really, he was giving this to Timothy, saying, I charge thee. And then he's saying, charge them. And so the charge given to Timothy was a charge that he needed to then pass on to the rest of the congregation. See, it's not just the responsibility of the pastor to, to have the, the, um, all of the, the knowledge about sound doctrine. That's a very big part of what I do and what I'm called to do, but really it's for the whole church. We are to be versed in that. We are to know that. And, and God cares very much about sound doctrine. And we've got to note to ourselves that doctrine can only be sound when founded upon the Word of God and its, its, its meaning and its application. And, and um, I think Paul understood this and he warned them, didn't he? I think we looked at these verses, but let's look at it again. Look at Acts chapter 20. Uh, turn to Acts chapter 20. Give us a, a bit of a setting for this letter as well. Acts chapter 20. And notice verse uh, Verse 26. And we'll read down to verse, uh, verse 30, uh, 32. It says, Wherefore I take you to record this day, that I am pure from the blood of all men. And he says in verse 27, For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. And I think I heard that this morning mentioned. It's the whole counsel of God. Uh, we don't just pick bits that we want to. And, and, and part of the issue we're going to see later on was they were they were they were somewhat starting to become imbalanced about some of the emphases that they had. They had become overbalanced. They weren't just, they weren't just considering the whole council. They were sort of just 
sometimes even majoring on some minors. And so he's starting to, to say, look, I've, I've not, I'm, I'm pure, I'm not guilty. Why? Because I've not shunned. I've, I've declared to you all the counsel of God. But then he gives a warning in verse 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over which the Holy Ghost that uh, hath made you overseers, and so really speaking here to pastors, to feed the church of God, and by the way, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves. So even within the church shall men arise speaking perverse things. Those are twisted things. Those, are, are, are the, those things are not sound doctrine. Those things are, are, are um, additional or, or misinterpreted perverse things to draw away disciples and here it is after them. They're looking for following. It says, Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn, uh, not to warn every, uh, every night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. And really at the crux of it, he's saying, the things that I've given you, I'm going to leave you with, and they're meant to build you up. They're going to be your, your protection. They're going to be your walls that protect you from, from, from wrong influences and error in the church. And what I'm saying and, and what we're seeing here, that, that in the lead up to uh, Tim, uh, Paul departing and leaving Timothy over there and, and, the, and the, the brethren and the church in Ephesus, he had already warned them that some will rise up and come in as wolves and come in and try to derail and then destroy the work of God. And even warning that it might even come from within. And he's saying, be careful. Watch, be diligent. And again, it's to this end that Timothy was coming into this environment where error had crept into the teaching at the church in Ephesus. And so he was tasked with addressing here we see this other doctrine and those who are propagating it. And, and who are they? Notice there, as I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they, who are they? Who, who, who were they? And I want to just say it was more than likely that Timothy was going to need to deal with elders in the church who had started to propagate this other doctrine. Notice this because of the following. In verse 7, he, notice what he says. Verse 7, he says, Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. He, he says in, in chapter 5, in verse 17, Let the elders that rule well. In chapter 3, in verse 2, he addresses the qualifications of a bishop. And so much of the subject matter in the, in the letter written to the church, he wasn't actually just speaking about those who were part of the, the fellowship, the body, so to speak, in that sense. He was speaking to specific theys. And he's actually going to name some here. And so, so it's more than likely... That, that because as we noticed, a major part of the teaching of this book 
is the role and characteristics of the pastor that, that as he was referring to those that were teaching this other doctrine, it was they. There were those who were maybe even in leadership positions in that church. And you understand that the early church often had a pattern of, of having several elders or pastors who taught in the house churches that made up the church of Ephesus. You understand that in that day, there wasn't like what we do now where we have, we have services like this, where we gather all together, oftentimes they had to meet in smaller settings. And, and I was relating that, I was thinking about that, um, Brother Jeremy, as you were talking about maybe several locations instead of bussing them in and trying to get them in. I was just thinking how the early church really had to do that. You know, this was a, a big city. And to get to places, and so it was more than likely that he was speaking to elders, those who were maybe heading up even some of the house churches that made up the church of Ephesus. In fact, if we look at this and look at verses 19 and 20, he says, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. And he names two, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. And so in the context of, of addressing this no other doctrine and the they that was propagating this no other doctrine, he was saying he named some. And it's more than likely that they's were those who had some sort of influence, some sort of leadership, even some sort of, uh, some sort of teaching. And that reminds me how, how, um, how needful it is for us who get the opportunity, and, and nay, let me just say privilege, to be able to teach the Word of God, how much we must guide ourselves, and how much we must study, and how much we must be free from the wrong influences in this world, to be able to purely give the sound doctrine that is needed in the church. That is, that is, a, that is a high calling. Uh, if you ever get asked to, to stand behind this pulpit or another in some classroom, whether you're teaching the, the prep, the ones who aren't even in school, right up to here, it's just not a, it's not a casual thing, I'm saying. You know, I never approach this pulpit feel, feeling like I'm worthy. I, I always approach it with fear and trembling. I always approach it, and I've I, I got to be humble before the Lord. I, I, we, we, we can't come here with the, with the notion that we know everything. And, and we must protect ourselves. Why? Because we need to protect the flock. And, and so here he gives instructions. Uh, he, he names some. Later, it seems Paul's, Paul gives further instruction on replacing these two pre previous elders. He he, he says in, in chapter 5, uh, verses 19 to 25, he says, And against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. He says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things, without preferring one another, without uh, doing nothing by partiality. Lay hands suddenly on no, ma on no man. Neither be partaker of other men's sins, Keep thyself pure. And again, 
we're, all, we're just setting the scene here, but we see how it's all linking in the book, doctrine, 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 and he's saying keep yourself pure. He wasn't talking about any other sin here. He was talking about those errors that had started to creep in and those specific ones that had come into the church whom he named. And he's saying in your replacement of them, lay, don't lay your hands on, on any man suddenly. Be considerate of, of who you're going to allow to take on these roles. And, and look how consistent the Scripture is. Look at Revelation chapter 3. Look at Revelation chapter 3. Sorry, chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And look at verses 1 to, one to 3. Um, notice here, the same church, right? He's writing to the, the, the same church in Ephesus. He's saying, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He says, I know thy works. He says, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. So seemingly... Uh, upon reception from, uh, from the charge given to Timothy and then by extension those that were in the church receiving the charge given him about all this warning, it seems like they've come through it and they've come through it well. In this sense, we, we know that they've fallen out of love. That was again mentioned this morning during the men's, uh, men's, uh, men's discussions. But we note there his, his, in, his, uh, in, his, um, in his compliment to the church, he's saying you tried them and you found that they were liars. And so again, he's talking about uh, apostles. He's talking about those who uh, perhaps were claiming some sort of authority. And he's saying you've tried them and you've found them wanting. You, you've come through it. I know that there's going to be issues later on. We're going to see, you're going to see that as you read on about this church, but he's complimenting it initially. He's saying, I know your works. I know your labors. I know the fact that you, you, can't even try, uh, you, you can't even stand those who are evil, and you've tried them which say they are apostles and are not and has found them liars. And so, again, it's just more than likely that they, that they teach no other doctrine are those that those elders perhaps who are in the church? And again, we don't know how these men came to be in error. I don't, I don't, we don't know how they got into that. Perhaps they were novices. We know we're warned in, in chapter 3, right, in those qualifications. Um, chapter 3, verse 6, not a novice. It says, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Hey, didn't he say, whom I have delivered unto Satan? And he's, maybe they were novices. Maybe they were those who weren't quite ready to assume those, this teaching role. And we know that it was rampant enough, though, that Paul had to send Timothy for this specific task. That thou mightest charge some, that they teach no other doctrine. And so what is this other doctrine? And 
if Timothy's charge was to refute another doctrine, this other doctrine, what was this other doctrine? And notice what he says in verse 4. He says, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith. So do. And so he's going to define it for us. He's saying, don't give heed to those that other doctrine which is really made up of fables and endless genealogies. And, and if you read a little bit, um, some, some will say this was a, a, had the, some of the Gnostic doctrine that had, was creeping into the Col- Col- uh, Colossi churches, uh, had crept in also, and that, that, that may be. But let's define those two things. He says fables and endless genealogies. Uh, we need to allow the Scripture to interpret itself, Right? And so the fables are this. Firstly, he says fables. Fables are a feigned story or tale. Just a made-up story. And what was happening was that their doctrine had started to be mixed with stories. And as we note, uh, Ephesus was a city that would be cosmopolitan. All walks of life, east and west, met. And, and many walks of life of varying culture met in that city, and many cultural stories were told. And these fables could, ha- could have easily become intermingled with the teachings of the local church, with the doctrine that, that Paul had left them. Um, you know, in our day, we, we have so many different resources that we can look to, and we've got to be careful. I, I think we were talking... Brother Jeremy, about some of your some of those um, villages who had uh, had Anglican works, and how really when they come back, although they were taught Anglican things, they were coming in and 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 intermingling what they had learned with local superstition and witchcraft. And in a very in a, in a similar sense, this was what was happening. He was saying fables. He was saying fables, and and, and you know we got to be careful. When, when uh, even, you know, even as we try to study the Word of God, that we, we allow uh, maybe even theories of men to be the directive in our Bible reading. And, you know, I'm not against commentaries. I think we can read some good resources from, from reputable people. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, even the Apostle Paul told, told Timothy, bring the cloak, but also bring the books. So we understand that Paul was a learned person. Uh, I'm not saying that, that we just do away. And, and, but what I'm saying that is this, the opinions of men and their take on Scripture shouldn't replace the Scripture itself. Right? And, and you know, isn't it interesting in this world of confusion that suddenly these biblical epics are being released as an interpretation of the of the Bible stories. Isn't that interesting? And, and you know, they're, they're, they're making movies about Paul, and, and I think a couple of years ago they made one about Noah and, and so forth. And, and you know, they're, they're reinterpreting. There's one, I think, uh, Brother Graham, you gave me a, an article about one about Mary Magdalene and some assumptions they had made about her and Jesus. I won't elaborate because it's just so blasphemous. But if you're not careful, and especially young people, you're, you're living in a visual age, you're visual, 
You're visual citizens. That's what you are. You want to learn visually? You better be careful that you enter into that. And you know what that is, really? Those are fables. (laughs) Uh, And parents, listen, I don't think it's wrong for for us to get a, a bit of a picture book when our kids are little, you know, about Bible stories. But please, parents, don't just give them that to read. Read the Bible. Give them the Bible. Don't just let them read that and, and then that'll be... Don't, don't replace Scripture with fables, made-up stories, assumptions. And really, that was... That, and we better be careful about those. Um, you know, uh, maybe even uh, blogs that we read and, and maybe even allegories. You know, uh, I, was, I was just uh, looking at... Uh, someone had put up, you know, top five books for discipleship. And I was just looking at that list. I was interested just to see what they had come up with. This was one of the brethren, another independent Baptist brother. And they put their, you know, and I'm not against this book, Pilgrim's Progress, you know, by John Bunyan. And it's a, who's, who's read that book? I've read it several times. It's a, it's a great allegory. But it's not scripture. <laughs> it's a made-up story, and it might illustrate good things. It might show good things, but it's not Scripture itself. And we better be careful that we read all of these allegories and, and different things, movies. Uh, I, know I was thinking about this week, you know, I'm, I'm a big reader of history, and I like to read Josephus. Josephus was a, just a Jewish historian. And I read a lot about because he was writing in the, same, in the same time as some of the, the, um, the events of the Bible. But, you know, I, I began to, to remind myself, I better be careful. And whilst it, it perhaps wasn't man-made in the sense of a fable, he's just a historian. It's not the Word of God. And it might help us to, to understand uh, perhaps some of, the, uh, some of the context of the day. It might even help us to, to sort, of, um, sort of pair up and, and understand Scripture uh, in the sense that it, it, um, it backs up Scripture. It doesn't conflict it. But we better be careful to, to put that above the plain and clear reading of the Word of God. And so he said, I'm just trying to define for you what fables uh, could be. I, I remember when I was, um, when I was a, a real, real young, uh, young boy, we went to this special meeting held by a church. It was a, a Baptist church. And I remember the, the, the guy was fairly young who was, who was preaching and, um, and he, he turned his Bible somewhere, I don't even remember, but the main gist of the, of the message was Old Mother Hubbard. Who knows the nursery rhyme, Old Mother Hubbard? And look, the, the point he was making was this, it was a big illustration, how, you know, um, and I think the context was, will, will, will God find any faithful? And he came to the cupboard, there was none. <laughs> but the text became Old Mother Hubbard. He referred to that more than the Scripture. And, and you know what, what bothers me sometimes in, in Christendom today is sometimes we, we open the Bible like it's just some launching point and it doesn't become the main thing. We don't go, turn your Bibles, and then we just expound. And, and you know, it, and sadly, many times I've sat in, in independent Baptist churches in special services and they say turn your bible and never refer to it you know what that is it's fables 
if you never go back to the Word of God to showcase its content and the truth of it, then I'm sorry, what you're doing is fables. And, and great, uh, we enjoyed your, your line of reasoning. Great, you showed your intelligence. But what did the Bible say is what I'm interested in. And, and so it was intermingled with fables. And, and some of the church of Ephesus had added uh, man-made theories, man-made myths to, to these divinely inspired scripture. But then he says, end. Notice there. And endless genealogies. Now, we know that genealogies was a a thing. You know, there was much disputing about genealogies. That was a characteristic of Judaism in that day. We we know even right through the gospel stories, even some examples. In John chapter 8, verse 39, they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. You know, the Jews, they were very proud of their lineage and, and their genealogy. Jesus saith unto them, if ye were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. You remember even Zacharias, when, when it was announced by the angel that his wife Elizabeth was to give birth, and he, he, he finally, uh, she, she finally gave birth, and they asked, what would his name be? And he answered, what was it? John. And they were bothered by that. Why? Because no one else in his lineage was named John. <laughs> they, they were so into their genealogy, uh, um, this really was a form of pride, you know, tracing lineage. It really was a common disputing between Pharisees, and perhaps it had bled into the church. And you understand, if you, uh, you ever uh, gone through the, the list of names, that, that you can get sort of lost in the names. And, and yet, we notice how specific Scripture is. He says, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies. And I believe that, that as you think about that, you know, there's many instances in the Bible, one particular one in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, it speaks about pastors and teachers. And if you look at that phrase there, it's really, it's not separate, two separate things. No, no, the pastor and teacher, really what it's saying is this, it's one and the same. And often when, when you see that there's no, there's no comma between end and another thing, it's speaking about one and the same with two parts. And so here we see, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies. And here's what I, I see from that as we consider Scripture here. I believe that it was also the case that fables and genealogies being mixed was the issue. What I'm saying is there had arisen in Ephesus those who adopted stories uh, perhaps made up of certain persons named in the genealogies. And, and if, you, if you consider that, uh, that time, that was a, quite a common thing. These were extra-biblical stories that had become part of the traditions of Judaism that really grew out of genealogies found in the Old Testament. Remember, what Scripture they had then was really the Old Testament. And, you know, we, we all love reading First Chronicles, don't we? I like it. Some of you skip it. I know it. <laughs> Why you can't pronounce the names? I'm telling you, it's a good warm-up for choir. All right? But tongue twisters. But you, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so. And what started to happen in that day was, was out of those genealogies, when there was no detail about the name, some had surmised about those names. Some had started to make up myths and legends 
about those names in genealogies. And what started to happen was the, the, the fables and endless genealogies were really two parts of the same era, the same aberration. An example of this found in tradition was of Jesus forming a bird out of clay. Somehow they had, they had found this story. According to the story, Jesus blew on the clay figure and it came to life and it flew away. And this fable, interestingly enough, is also found in the Quran. And written several centuries after this epistle. But, but that was sort of the idea. It was, it was almost uh, to bring entertainment value. It really reminded me when I was considering this, just how Hollywood has represented some of our biblical stories. They had put extra. They had made it entertaining. And yes, I did put myself through some of those. And I remember watching the Noah one and these giant rock monsters started to come. And I just looked at that like, what? That's not even, that's definitely not even in the Hebrew. <laughs> they just, that's just, that, that, and that's what it was. It was, they had made it myth, uh, mythological. And, and here's what someone said about uh, this, uh, this period. The practice indeed was so common that the word genealogy was often used in the sense of mythical history. And this would seem to be its meaning in the present verse. So, so it, it was possible that, that part of the error was this. They were reading into these genealogies and they were applying mythology and fables into their teaching. And, and, and that had become an emphasis and so this error in doctrine wasn't just mere error. It was also an overemphasis really on conjecture and on unfounded stories. And these elders had, become, uh, had come to adopt conjecture over clarity. Because he says later on, he says, Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions. And, and what was happening was as the teaching was being given, the, the, the clarity was being put out of place and what was taking place was just conjecture. They were just um, postulating based on the fables that people had come up with or they had heard about based on the genealogies. And what that was, what it was eroding really is then he says this, rather than godly edifying which is in faith, so do. And so the result then was this in verse 4. It, it was, uh, uh, they were impeded in their edification. Remember we read earlier in Acts chapter 20 verse 32 that the, the things that He commended, the word of His grace, which is to build you up. The purpose of the word of God is to build us up. It's meant to feed us and, and grow us. And the purpose of the church really was being impeded or hindered the emphasis of fables and stories caused more questions and really there were no real answers. And so when the Word of God in its clarity is ignored, in its plain meaning, but rather becomes a thing to debate and imagine up application, the edification or building up of the saints, that's the cost, it's hindered. We spoke about John Bunyan earlier. He said this, Some love the meat. Some love to pick at the bones. 
And so other examples of this as we, we think about perhaps application, maybe there's an overemphasis on typology. And we understand the Bible's full of types. An overemphasis perhaps on numerology, maybe on the details of the passage, but not covering the point of the passage. Uh, there's, there's those who have uh, preachers who have hobby horses. It just seems like whatever they're doing, it always leads to that pet doctrine that they have. But the Bible already told us, give them the whole counsel. Give them everything. And it just seems like there, there are those, and that, that, um, we're just talking about application. And you know, all of that, what ends up happening is this, there's, there's, there's a hindering of the edification of the church. When we focus on the, the bones and not love the meat. And, um, you know, when there's that old saying, if you, all you have is a hammer, you see everything as, a, as nails. Is it that way? Never heard of that? Okay, well, anyway. But there was, a, there was a hindrance to their edification. And, you know, Paul penned these words to remind Timothy to correct teachers in the Ephesian church who were majoring on minor matters. They were intermingling made-up stories into the, into the teaching of the Word of God. They, they were... They were speculations uh, that were abounding questions, which minister questions uh, based on myths and fables. And it, in so doing, really, he reminded Timothy of his own responsibility as a teacher and communicator of the Word of God. And, you know, all of us do that to some degree. So Some of us do that formally like I am tonight. But all of us will do, will do that at some point in our lives in our families. We'll do that in, in our council, perhaps. We'll do that in our, in our speaking of, of the Word of God. So it's a reminder for us also. So in, in his warning, really, this was a reminder of Timothy of his responsibility. And it's this, we are to give the plain truth and find, find our balance of emphasis in the truth. Okay, the ultimate aim of the Christian teacher or preacher is not to generate debate and controversy. It should be to cultivate the lives of the hearer, to be daily practitioners of the clear truth of God's Word. That's the goal. And he's warning here. He's saying, you know why I left you there, Timothy? It's because there's, a, there's, there's those who are teaching another doctrine. It's, it's this, it's fables and endless genealogies. They, they minister questions. But don't forget, you're meant to edify. He says, you know what happens? He says, it's, it's that rather than godly edifying, which is in faith. So do. And so each of us, we have responsibility. We have a responsibility. The ultimate aim of the Christian teacher or preacher is not to generate debate and controversy. Right? It's to cultivate. You know, when we, when we give the, the word to our children, it's meant to better them. It's meant to help them grow. Um, it's, meant to, it's meant to give them some meat. It's meant to, to nourish them. And you know, um, there's many of us here who get that opportunity through the week. 
Many of you have teaching positions within this church. Some of you frequently, some infrequent, but many of you have that opportunity. And I, my, I myself, very much so. And so this was a challenge for me. And it ought to be a challenge for you. What, it, what is it? You know, it's a reminder of what we, our responsibility as a communicator, as a teacher or a preacher of God's truth. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you, dear God, for tonight. And Father, thank you, Lord, for, Lord, just the, the things of your word. Thank you, dear God, that, Lord, it's so applicable in our day. Pray to God that you'd help us as, we, as we're dismissed, as we, uh, Lord, just um, head into our week, that you'd, you'd guide us, you'd, you'd protect our minds and our hearts. Help us, Lord, to be, Lord, help us, Lord, to be in your word. Help us, Lord, to, to study it, to let your spirit teach us. Help us, Lord, to, to rightly divide it. And I pray that you'd help us then as a result in our personal lives and in the lives of those who influence uh, might profit and might, Lord, grow and might be uh, one who edifies the saints. And we pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are going to take up our offering.